Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churfus. I've been reading a pretty interesting book called Small Bites, subtitled Biocultural Dimensions of Children's Food and Nutrition. It shines a light on many of the phantoms haunting discussions around food and food systems, specifically as they affect young children. So naturally, I wanted to have a chat with the author. So my name is Tina Moffat. I'm a uh, associate professor uh, uh, in the Department of Anthropology at McMaster University. So I've done uh, comparative uh, studies of infant and young child feeding in uh, Nepal, Canada, France, and Japan. So to get one thing out of the way, because I didn't just want to know about what children eat in different countries, I asked Tina Moffat to tell me about the average lunch at an elementary school in France. I went to a variety of schools. They were um, quite different, and it was interesting to see the different approaches in uh, France. So, for example, in one of the arrondissements in, in Paris that I visited, uh, they did all of their coaching, cooking from scratch in the schools. They had kitchens, they had cooks, everything was from scratch. They would buy uh, a cow that was organically raised and, you know, used the meat for the, the different schools in, in that uh, district. They were very kind of purist about it, and they were rather critical of some of the other districts that had um, actually food come uh, in from another from a company. I, I sampled one of the lunches in, in one of those schools where they had the food coming from outside. And I have to say, it was still quite good, much better than anything I'd ever tasted uh, anywhere else. Um, you know, I was impressed with that. But of course, the schools where they were making, you know, food from, from scratch was, was really amazing. And so the, the lunches tend to consist, they always have a, a, some kind of appetizer where they would, you know, have a, a, some kind of a fruit or salad and then a main course, which consists of either uh, some kind of meat or fish or a vegetarian uh, dish, uh, and then uh, vegetables with it, and then um, cheese to finish, or uh, and yogurt, and always uh, baguette bread, you know, everywhere that children can take, uh, and water to drink. So that's what those, all of the lunches consisted of in some form or other. I mean, it was a lunch that I enjoyed eating. And, you know, the kids seemed to eat it and enjoy it. And not that many French children are overweight. But, you know, cause and effect. I'm not going to jump to any conclusions, and neither does Tina Moffat. Still, one of the reasons her book is so interesting is that around the world, especially in richer countries, we have been seeing a rise in childhood obesity. And that's worrying because of the ill health associated with obesity in adults. That rise in childhood obesity has been called an epidemic. And that seemed like a good place to start. Is it really an epidemic? No. <laughs> that would be my resounding answer. It's being constructed as an epidemic because it you know there there was definitely a big increase in 
levels of childhood obesity beginning, you know, somewhere around the, the early 1980s and accelerating into the 21st century. But it, it, you know, just because there's an increase in something doesn't mean it's an epidemic. The reason why I'm very uncomfortable with the uh, the use of uh, epidemic when referring to childhood obesity is is because it really then um, puts us into a crisis mode, and it it implies that we have to do something you know very quick and uh, sort of magic bullet type of you know approach similar to the way we've approached the COVID nineteen pandemic, right? We you know we come up with vaccines drugs, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, whereas childhood obesity is, as, uh, you know, as I, I lay out in my book is, is much more, uh, connected to larger social structures and, uh, social conditions and, um, problems with our food system. So there, there are no, there are no drugs, there are no vaccines, there are no magic bullets that are going to, to tackle this problem. It's, it's really uh, much wider and more complex, and it's going to take more thoughtful uh, responses to it. But in response to the kind of crisis thinking, people blame this or that. You know, it's, it's sugar, it's uh, fat, it's ultra-processed foods. Is it, is it even possible to blame any one thing? Or, as you seem to suggest, is it the food system in general? I think you can point to some things that have been happening within our food system or the changes in our food system over the the time that obesity has uh, increased. And uh, certainly, you know, the rise in ultra-processed foods, the increased consumption of sugar, uh, more, you know, more sedentary lifestyles, those those are certainly, you know, I'm not going to discount those as factors. But I think what happens is if you start sort of focusing on just those sort of uni-causal factors, then you start to also focus on individuals. In, in terms of childhood obesity, it's, it's usually the parents that are implicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you lose sight, as you say, of those larger uh, food system issues that um, we really do have to think about before we can begin to tackle any of those specific factors. Mm. Does, does an obese child turn into an obese adult or I mean were obese adults generally obese as children yeah so that's the interesting thing I mean there there haven't been that many studies of it obviously it's it's not an easy thing to do you have to follow uh, people longitudinally or you know have good retrospective data to look at Um, but the few studies that have uh, come out show that not all obese children become obese adults and most of the uh, obese adults in the world today were not obese children. So, yeah, you, again, there's this kind of um, deterministic and um, you know, foreboding kind of approach to childhood obesity, which uh, may, makes it sound like it's you know inevitable that uh, that these children will sort of follow this this lifelong trajectory. When I was a slightly pudgy child, there was this thing called puppy fat, and um... You grew out of it. Um, Whatever what what happened to that idea? Yeah, that's a really good point. Even now, babies who are, uh, you know, were designed to be <laughs> fat, they, they need the fat. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, overweight or obese, but they, they look, you know, 
a healthy baby looks a little, as you said, that have the puppy fat. And, and that's really important for the, the development of the brain. So, you know, when we start getting really freaked out about childhood obesity, then we start targeting, you know, toddlers and uh, worrying about them being uh, slightly pudgy. What we risk is if we start worrying, you know, making perhaps making uh, children uh, disordered eaters. If they're worrying about dieting at at a young age, then um, we risk that they actually do become obese later on because they uh, start having a very unhealthy relationship with their food and their eating. One of the changes, I I guess it sort of predates this obesity, rise in childhood obesity, but when did food manufacturers start to produce foods targeting children specifically? It really began to happen, um, you know, post-World War II, when uh, there was this, and into the 1950s, when there was this um, vitamania craze where people were really concerned about their children being malnourished. Advertisers picked up on parents being concerned about their, their children being malnourished, developing different drinks, and, and, and eventually, uh, you know, breakfast cereals became really, I think, one of the most intense, you know, foods that were intensely marketed to children. Um, and were fortified, you know, with different uh, micronutrients. One of the big problems with cereals, breakfast cereals marketed to to children, is added sugar. I don't know if you saw a um, very recent report from the USDA on added sugars in school meals. Did you see that? Um, I didn't, actually. I'll have to look that up. In the US, almost all school breakfasts and a large majority of school lunches contain more than 10% of calories is added sugars. And that 10% is supposed to be a ceiling, not not some target. Um, I, I find that astonishing. It is. It is. And again, this is back to, I guess, my contention that we do not value the, you know, the, the amount of uh, investment we should put into children's food. So the types of foods that are, you know, delivered at school meal programs um, in the States in particular do not uh, have the nourishment that they should have. They, they are, as you say, highly sugared. They're cheap. They're cheap foods. And, you know, it's not surprising because the cheaper foods are full of sugar, right? Because those are the foods that are easily mass produced. Um, they're appealing to the masses. And they are used in these programs for children. And I, and I should say in Canada, where we have no government subsidized meal programs, a lot of the food is donated. And so again, these donations are often the, you know, the cheap, uh, cereals that people think are going to be appealing to children. And then therefore they're served at these programs. A lot of parents are kind of terrified of feeding their children because the children are, are, you know, what they call picky eaters. Um, yes. What's, what's that about? Yes. Uh, it's, again, I guess something I, I've been very interested in as an anthropologist because my you know, cross-cultural approach shows that it's not always the case that children are terrified of <laughs> feeding their children. And so my, my time, uh, spent in France 
I can tell you that the parents are not afraid of feeding their children. And, and for the most part, children eat what their parents tell them they're going to eat and off, or is on offer. There is a very well-known phenomenon of neophobia that, you know, omnivores like people don't necessarily eat lots of something they haven't come across. Is that something children do share universally as opposed to picky eating? Absolutely. And it usually starts, you know, somewhere around the time when the child starts becoming mobile, right? And, and, uh, from about six months on, it, you know, they're able to stuff things in their mouth and, you know, they're, you know, obviously they're not feeding themselves still, but they, they are able to test out what's in the environment. And so it's, it, you know, it, it's probably a good thing. It's probably an evolutionary, uh, thing that children do start to become suspect of what's out there. And even the food that their parents might be giving them, they're, they're uh, fussy about or, or concerned about. They don't want to necessarily eat. Hmm. And that's, that's natural. And that goes on sort of, you know, into the, you know, the toddler years. But that doesn't mean that it needs to continue because as children become, you know, more cognitively aware of what they should and shouldn't be eating, uh, as they keep trying different foods. I mean, I think that's the thing that we should be teaching parents is that it's okay if your child rejects a food once or twice or even 15 times, which is quite normal. Um, just keep offering it because at some point they probably will eat it uh, if it's good food. Unfortunately, a lot of parents have become, uh, you know, assume that that means that their child's not going to, doesn't like that food and won't like it for their life. And they start um, offering them very simple foods that, you know, they know they'll eat. I guess, again, a f- sort of a fear. And again, I think it's sort of a primal fear of, you know, <laughs> that your child will starve, yeah. right? Yeah. That somehow you'll, you'll, you won't be able to, to nourish them. But other cultures don't seem to do that, right? Necessarily, uh, again, there's a sort of more confidence that their child will eat, that they won't starve. If the food is there, then they'll eventually come around to eating it. It is strange if you go to a restaurant in North America, England certainly, you have this phenomenon of parents asking the children what the children would like, as if the child not merely has agency, but but knows what's good for it. And I wonder how valid that is. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a, a, you know, I I don't, I'm certainly not advocating that we go back to the sort of model that of, of some, you know, maybe 1950s parenting where you, you know, you, you must eat everything on your plate and, uh, you know, you, you won't get dessert if you don't eat everything. And, you know, I think that's, that becomes punitive and, and overly harsh. And that, that, you know, eating issues arise from that as well. So I'm not advocating that, but, uh, it's definitely a balance. Uh, there's a give and take. And I think some of the, the, uh, experts who, who deal with, uh, children's eating disorders, which are becoming, you know, more and more a problem, uh, we'll talk about this sort of thing. Like there, you've got some choices, but you, there's, there's a range, you know, there are limits on those choices. So you can have pasta or you can have soup and you can choose, but you're not going to have, you know, the, the cheeseburger or the hot dog tonight. Um, <laughs> that's not an option. 
You do say in the book um, you recognize something that I, I think I found very interesting, which is you say that children have special nutritional needs, but they don't have special food needs. I will, can you expand on that? Yeah, I think that's uh, – thank you for bringing that up because I think it's an important point that I think we miss sometimes or we confuse, right? So children do have special nutritional needs. They are growing rapidly. For their size, they require more nutrients, you know, um, compared to adults. Obviously, they overall, they, they, they require less food, but, but relative to their size, they, they require more. And, and, and they also have small tummies, you know, they, they can't eat, you know, a huge meal necessarily. So they have to eat sort of, you know, more f- frequent meals. And, and those meals have to, you know, be nutrient dense, right? So I, I give the example in the book is calcium, right? So children obviously require calcium. And so, yeah, for their age, uh, they require, and the size of their bodies, they require more. Those are special nutritional needs. And I think everybody, you know, who's feeding a child needs to be aware of those, but you can get all of those nutrients, uh, within the food that everybody else is eating in the family. You don't have to have, uh, these special foods. And yet again, you know, the marketers prey on our insecurities and they start to market us things like toddler milk. So toddler milk is this. Um, you know, special milk for toddlers once they've finished formula or breastfeeding. And it's, you know, has more uh, nutrients in it. It also has sugar in it, of course. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, you know, supposed to be perfect for the growing toddler who requires more nutrients. Um, when in reality, that toddler can get all, all, all the toddler needs from regular milk if they're drinking milk. And uh, all the other foods that are uh, available that also contain calcium, for example, such as tofu, broccoli, etc. Okay, if if childhood obesity is is not actually an epidemic, but it it is maybe not such a great thing, where should we be looking to change things? Is it is it the individual, uh, the mother, the parents, or or is it the food system? I'm intrigued by attempts to ban advertising to children, for example. I, I don't know whether they work. Is that something that most countries should be trying? I think so. Uh, and, the, 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 you know, there, there could be definitely a healthy debate around that. And, uh, uh, and we actually have this really interesting example in, in Canada where we have Quebec, our province of Quebec, has a ban on childhood advertising, whereas the rest of the Canada doesn't. One study I did find, which was very well done, did show that there was definitely lower fast food consumption for francophone children uh, who were not getting the childhood advertising in their French TV. Uh, didn't apply to Anglophones because they get TV from elsewhere, so it wasn't, um, you know, you can't really block out advertising. I think it is something we should be working on. Having said that, it's really hard, and it's getting harder and harder with all the different media coming out. Um, many children aren't watching conventional TV anymore. They're, they're watching YouTube and various other um, channels, streaming channels. So it becomes harder 
for sure for governments to monitor all that. But I, I do think there's something to be said for, for doing that. And I also think there's, you know, we, we need to work on policies about, as you mentioned earlier, the level of sugar in, in children's food and what's allowable. It's just crazy that, that, you know, you breakfast cereal is, you know, same amount of sugar is eating a chocolate bar, you know, what, just give your child a chocolate bar in the morning <laughs> because it's, it's not going to be much better. I'm not going to be taking that out of context. But <laughs> if, if this epidemic talk is about fear and crisis and everything else, more generally, how should we be thinking about childhood obesity? You know, there are some who who go very far into the sort of the constructionist approach to obesity in general and just say this is sort of being manufactured by the medical community that we really don't have. Is, it's not as much of a problem as, as everyone's talking about. And, you know, there's a lot of harm being done uh, to people who are overweight, obese. I, I don't think we should just discount it. I think it, it is an issue and we need to we need to take it seriously. But I don't think, again, um, back to what I was saying earlier, I don't think there are any quick fixes. I think we have to think about children as not just, you know, where they are now, but where they're, they're going in their lives. And, and so, you know, as humans, we, we teach our children, we educate them. You know, it's a cultural process, right? So we, we model for them. So we model what eating is, what food is. I mean, again, this, goes back to uh, what I talk about in the book with the French approach for their school lunches, where they're very much modeling what a good French meal consists of uh, in their school lunch programs. And children are, are learning that at a young age. And so the, the intervention programs of the last 20 years have been very much, you know, we're going into a school, we're going to set up this program, we're going to make kids do all this exercise, we're going to teach them about healthy eating. And then, you know, a year later, we're going to weigh them and see if they lost any weight. And that's absolutely the wrong approach. I mean, that's such a short term, you know, attempt to, you know, make people lose weight, which, you know, we know too, that dieting, you know, losing weight quickly is usually not going to be very successful for the long term because more often than not, people put the weight back on, right? It, it really has to be this kind of thinking much more globally and broadly about how we're teaching our children to eat and what to eat. And, and that has to happen right from the start. And, and, and yes, parents obviously have a role to play in that, but we can't just let them do it on their own or expect every parent to become enlightened um, when they have a million other things to do in their lives and a, a million other problems besides, you know, whether their children are eating too much sugar. Tina Moffat. Her book, Small Bites, was published earlier this year by the University of British Columbia Press. The idea that a healthy and sustainable school lunch will fix everything is clearly not the whole story. If it were, Italy wouldn't have a childhood obesity problem, and it does. But equally, being exposed early and often to, quote, good, unquote, eating habits must also play a role. I don't envy anyone trying to feed a child well while constantly bombarded by advertising and trying to make ends meet. And 
talking to Tina Moffat dredged up a couple of memories. One was of my own school lunches in London, where somehow they contrived to make a chocolate-coloured sauce for the chocolate sponge for pudding that had absolutely no taste whatsoever. None. And the other was of a few months when breakfast consisted of all the mini-boxes of cereal you could eat. And I ate three every morning, because each box promised a third of my daily vitamins. Would you care to share your school lunch memories? Drop a line to jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or tweet me at eatpodcast. And that's all from Eat This Podcast for this episode. Show notes as ever at eatthispodcast.com. And until the next time, from me, Jeremy Churfus, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.